Susan, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with me today. It's really an honor to have you devote some of your time to this podcast, so thank you. You're welcome. I had heard Oprah say one time, once you look, you can't pretend you didn't see it. And that was me after hearing this topic that frankly, I knew nothing about at the time. But what I knew was that my kids at the time were upstairs sleeping and they have never known trauma. They're not stressed, they're safe, they're healthy. And it just hurt to imagine children like my own experiencing the opposite for years and years. And I just felt like listening to that episode, kind of what you have said about your first experience, that this is now my burden to bear. And then what you said at the end of the interview was striking. And you said, this world doesn't need more nonprofits. It needs stronger, more effective ones. And so I felt like you were literally speaking to me that that was the sign with blinking lights to say, Melissa, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. How can you help bring National Angels to the Houston community? And so I sent in an email that day, and here we are some 10 months later. So with that being said, can you start by telling everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, your family, your past roles, and your present one? A little bit about me. I, um, I think it's interesting that I ended up in the nonprofit space because that was not my desire. I um, didn't have big audacious dreams or goals. Um, when, when I was first entering into volunteering, it was not on my radar. Um, but I like to say that God has different plans for our lives than what we may think. I was trying to climb the proverbial corporate ladder and spent eight years in corporate America as a sales trainer. Um, and so my job was to onboard, hire, and develop new people to teach them how to sell and close homes. And during that time in my life, I had really felt like God was calling me to do something different. I had felt like in my life, impact was supposed to play a role. And what I was doing never really felt like much, much impact. Um, and so... I started just by volunteering in my community. Um, prior to starting Austin Angels, I had never volunteered a day in my life, but knew that I was at a job and was financially making enough money that I could be given back. Um, and really at that point wasn't. And so I started off just by volunteering in my community. And then my life completely changed when I went to a conference. Um, and you just said that Oprah speech or the, the quote. Um, and, and for me, it was that moment. It was learning about children and families who are in foster care, who go through this journey. And that was the real turning point for me. And that's when my life changed. And I had decided that from that moment moving forward, I was going to devote my entire life to making a difference and really creating impact that changes people's lives. So your first major experience learning about the foster care system was at that conference that you mentioned um, that one of your clients at the time had invited you to, who happened to be working for Child Protective Services. So can you talk about why she wanted you to go to that conference and what you learned while you were there? And some of the stories you heard, they were really impactful. Yeah, so I had actually sold a home to a woman who was a CPS worker, and she sat in my office, and we talked about the volunteering work that I was doing, and I had always felt like in my life, adoption was going to play some role, but didn't really know what that meant. Uh, and so anyway, she was attending this conference. So um, she was a CPS worker and, per, and um, was in this judge's courtroom all the time. And he was speaking and she was going to this conference and she asked if I wanted to go with her. And so I did. Um, 
really with the intention of going to the breakout sessions about adoption. I was not interested in going to the foster care breakout sessions because I felt like, you know what, I'm not built that way. I don't know how to love on children and then let them go. Um, and so when I went to the conference, she had poignantly pointed out to me that um, foster care is not really about you. And wouldn't it be nice for someone like you to open up your home to a child who's been so badly abandoned or uh, neglected or abused? And when she said that to me, it was kind of like the kick in the pants that I needed. And I walked into a breakout session, it was like foster care 101, and sat in a classroom with about 30 people. And a very prominent judge at the time, this was back in 2010, and a prominent judge at that time told a story um, that forever changed my life. And he had talked about two little boys that had gone in and out of his courtroom. In the classroom, he had put up a projection screen and had split the screen into two different little boys' stories. And it had listed both little boys had entered into care at the age of two years old. And they both had aged out right at 18 years old. And it had listed all of the abuse that these boys had received in their life and, and all the psychotropic meds that they were on in 22 and 23 different placements. And so this is literally my first exposure to foster care. I really have this very myopic point of view in my life where I wouldn't say I was self-serving, but I certainly wasn't opening up the blinders to the world around me and how children in my own community within the same zip code were being treated. Um, and so this was my first real aha, eye-opening moment uh, about what happens. And, you know, I, I think... Melissa, so oftentimes people are like out of sight, out of mind, not my problem. And specifically for kids who are in foster care, I think as a whole, our society views it as, well, we've got the foster care system and we've got foster parents, so like they're taken care of. And every time I speak about the work that we do, and I share the statistics that plague children who are in foster care, people are astounded. They're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. How can this be true? Um, and so that was me. I was in that conference saying, what in the world? This is, there is no way that this is happening. So the, the two little boys on each side of the screen, one little boy, no matter how many times he gets moved, he does really well in school. And that was a real uh, novelty. It's a real novelty when a child can do well in school when they're being moved so often. Um, from an educational standpoint, we know through statistics that they're about six months behind every time a child moves. On average, they're moving seven times within two years. So this is why we have such a low graduation rate for kids who are in care. So the little boy on the left-hand side of the screen, no matter how many times he would move, he did quite well in school. And the judge had talked about how when he was about eight years old, the parental rights had been terminated and the CPS worker goes and picks up this young man and takes him to picnics. I, I don't know who created this idea, but, but basically what it was is for mommies and daddies who are open to adopt, they could go to these picnics and they could meet children who were also parental rights have been terminated. And it's a great thing for kids who go to the picnic and they get chosen every year to find a forever home. And it's a terrible thing for kids to go to year after year after year and they never get chosen. So the little boy says, what can I do to show myself worth? How can I prove that I'm worthy of being loved? And as a mom of two little boys, what I know 
is that no child should have to feel like they have to earn the right to be loved. So he said, I know what I can do to show my, show that I'm worthy of being loved. I can take my report card. I can take my report card and I can go up to all the mommies and daddies and say, look, choose me. I make good grades. And the young man does this year after year after year, and he never gets chosen. So the young man, two weeks prior to him turning 18 years old, he's now living in a residential treatment center. And the director comes to him and says, son, you have been adopted. And he says, what do you mean I've been adopted? I've wanted to be adopted my entire life. And I'm about to get out in two weeks. And what do you mean? And he says, you've been adopted and your father will be here soon to get you. So the young man irons his shirt and he's standing on the steps of the residential treatment center. The father comes to him and says, son, um, I am sorry that it has taken me 18 years to find you, but you will never have to worry about where you go from here, that you are my son until the day that I die. And that young man moves in with them and they put him through school and then they put him through seminary school and he grows up and creates a foster and adoption agency. And you hear that story and you say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Even at 18 years old, there's still hope and redemption. And the judge said at that moment that, you know, not everybody's called to foster and not everybody's called to adopt, but everyone can play a role in a child's life. And the sad part is, is that the other little boy on the other side of the screen literally had no one, no one to rescue him, no one to come in and speak truth into his life. So the little boy with the exact same amount of abuse and neglect, he turns 18 years old. But when he turns 18, he just leaves the residential treatment center and he begins to walk and he begins to walk and he begins to walk until he can find the nearest freeway and he throws himself in front of an 18 wheeler and he commits suicide. And the judge said, what a disservice to our community and to our world, because we will never know what that young man was supposed to grow up and become. And at that moment, I felt like, you know, I don't know if I'm called to foster. I don't know what, I, I don't know what I'm called to do, but what I do know is that I can make a difference in a child's life and felt the weight of the world at that conference, as if God had said to me, Melissa, now this is your burden to bear, which you quoted. And I felt it with every ounce of my being. And I left that conference. I went back to the group that I was volunteering with. And I said, we're going to focus on having children experience care differently. And so what we did for the next three years was we did community service projects. And we still do that today, but we did community service projects for normalcy for children. We wanted to expose them to things like sports and arts. And we said, it's great and it's important, but we're not changing the trajectory of their life. So how do we do that? And we launched a pilot of a program that we do today. And that was, we gotta walk alongside them. We've gotta ensure that they have the opportunity to rise, to reach their fullest potential so they're prepared for adult living so that when they get out at 18 years old, they have a direct plane and path and they don't end up as a statistic that says you will end up homeless, incarcerated, commit suicide, or be human trafficked. And I see it now and I believe it with all of my heart that if we can actually get to every single child and have them reach their fullest potential, we'll not only change the foster care system, we'll change the country that we live in. And more so than that, we'll change children's lives that will then change generations. 
I think people are often surprised to hear how woven foster care is into stories of things like poverty, human trafficking, homelessness, and just how much it's, it's connected to all those other social issues. And that if we kind of start earlier at the pipeline, you can resolve some of these later issues. Absolutely. We can either put a Band-Aid on a problem and pay, you know, it costs our country this year $8.4 billion, with a B, $8.4 billion to run a broken system that fails these kids, that only perpetuate our homeless problem, our prison population, the number of children who are human trafficked. So yes, if we just go to the root, if we can just go upstream and, and wrap community and support around these children's families, then we know that we will have a different outcome in the future. We know that um, foster parents they often have a hard time. We know that half of them, 50% of all foster parents will actually close their doors to foster care within their first year. So what have you personally seen um, along your journey? Some of the biggest challenges that foster parents and families um, have, what are the, some of the biggest sources of overwhelm and exhaustion for them? Well, I think first and foremost, Anytime you enter into this as a foster parent, you now become a government-owned piece of property where people come in and out of your home. And I think that's a challenge in and of itself. Um, you know, I uh, work full-time. I've got two kids. And I just think, gosh, when I was a foster parent, we would have CASA, turning at Lido, CPS workers, placement workers. I mean, it's a revolving door of people who are coming in and out of your home, not to mention all the appointments that you have um, to take the children to the therapist and to go to bio visits. You are constantly up against challenges. So that's number one. Number two, there is an emotional burden and a secondary trauma that you bear when you are a foster parent. And then lastly, I think you just feel so alone in this process. I have an incredible group of girlfriends that I do my life with. But when you are a foster parent, they have a very hard time fully understanding of what you're going through because, um, and then the other thing too, it's like, well, you, you signed up for this, you did this, you, you, you wanted to do this. And so like, how could you call me and now complain about it kind of thing. So I think foster parents feel isolated and ill-supported and ill-equipped during this process. And so I would say those are some of the challenges, you know? Yeah. Can you share a few stories of impact from Austin's programs that have really stuck with you over the years? We right now currently serve just right around 200 children. And I would tell you, Melissa, that every single one of those 220 children that's in our program, that get supported on a monthly basis. And we've got, I think, close to 89 families that we support on a monthly ongoing basis. I would say every single one of them has impact within the program. Just out of the top of my head, I um, go back to our pilot program. When I started, I have had so many parents say to me, I was about to turn in my notice that I could not do this anymore. And because of this program, I'm now able to foster longer. Closest touch point to healing for kids in trauma is stability in a healthy placement. So if we have a mom and dad who are called to foster and we can build infrastructure around them and support them in this journey, then children can stay in placement longer. And I think some of the breakdown is if we can prevent kids from moving from home to home to home to home, which just perpetuates a feeling of nobody wants me, I don't belong. If we can just do one placement for one child until they get 
either reunified or adopted or stay in placement through fostering in that same home through the journey, then we know that we can break down lots of offshoots that happens because of that one thing. So you were running Austin Angels for several years. What was the turning point when you realized that this organization could exist on a national scale? Were you excited, anxious, intimidated to think that you could one day be responsible for a whole national organization? And I say that because as president of the Houston chapter and knowing how much work and blood, sweat, and tears goes into getting just one city up and running, the thought of kind of spreading it across multiple cities sounds amazing from an impact standpoint, but incredibly ambitious and difficult. So how long did it sort of take you to kind of prepare and brainstorm what would need to happen to scale this? Well, I'll tell you that I am a leader that doesn't have to have everything perfect in order to like, you know, start running out of the gate. So um, I like to use the term that I'm riding the bike and building it at the same time. We're still figuring out this chapter thing. We don't have everything buttoned up. We're not perfect. I don't think we'll ever be, you know, and I think there's always areas for uh, improving. And I think for us, you know, I wasn't a visionary to say, okay, now I want to take this and expand it. That's not how this went down because my view was how do I get every kid in Austin in our program? But this goes back to God having other plans. Um, we had an influencer who promoted us on their social media, and we got hit by 25 different cities and states all over the country writing into us and saying, hey, foster care is a crisis in my city and in my state, and I see your program, and I want to know more. Um, have you ever thought about duplicating? And literally, I remember sitting back from my desk and saying, oh, okay, God, uh, <laughs> are you telling me something here? Because it wasn't one or two people. We literally got 25 emails in about a week time. I feel like one of the things that I'm probably good at and as a, as a leader and a person of faith is I don't hold on to things so tightly that I feel like I'm in control of this. I feel like I hold this as a compass. Like, God, where are you telling me that you want me to go? Um, and intuition for me and this gut feeling is literally how I have expanded and grown this. So when we had 25 people reach out to us all over, I said, okay, God, I'm listening to you. I think this is what you're telling us. So there was a woman out of Amarillo and I had like an hour long phone call with her and just felt like this woman has the exact same heart, the exact same vision, the exact same mission. We did a couple of meetings, a couple of calls. I invited her to Austin to spend some time with us, fell in love with her and said, would you be interested in helping me pilot this program? Would you help me build this out? And if it works with you and it's a success, then we'll launch it. And God perfectly positioned this woman because I feel like because it was so successful with her, I was brave enough to say, let's do it again. I think the terms community service or donation, they're such standard or simple or vague terms, but when you dive deeper, this concept of kind of truly connecting more with those in your community and lifting others and this idea that a rising tide raises all ships, I think there's such a need for more people to kind of integrate this idea of community service into their everyday lives because honestly, true impact is within reach for everybody. You don't have to wait to be at a point in your life when you can just write a million dollar check to have insane impact. And I can admit that at some point in my life, that's kind of what I thought that I just wasn't able to or ready at this point in my life to, to, to really make any impact on anybody else and give something significant. And that's just so wrong. So 
what what does community service mean to you? Well, I think the operative word here is community. Yeah. Right? And it's one of our three core values. Yeah. yeah. And so let me tell you why that is a core value for us. And I want to talk to you about the service piece being secondary to me and community being the highest, you know. Okay, so let me just take a step back. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a podcast and the guy that was doing the podcast just said it beautifully. And what he said was, we don't do community with each other anymore, right? We look at our phones more than we look at each other. And, um, and he was talking about how in the 60s and 70s, our uh, country, when we built homes, we built front porches on our homes and we didn't put six foot privacy fences in the back and people weren't on their devices and their electronics on the inside of their home. They were on the outside of their home, sitting on their front porch, talking to their neighbors. They were outside doing their own landscaping. Um, and over the course of the last, you know, 40 years, our whole life has changed. Now, when we come home from work, we drive straight into our garage. We shut the door behind us. We go and we play on our devices or we watch TV. We don't do community anymore with one another. And that is the breakdown. And I think that is what makes our program so important. Because when I first started this organization, what I was amazed at is that people want a way in which to give back. They just need an opportunity to do it. Yes, our organization needs your money. What we, in order to reach more children and serve more families, we have to have uh, donations come in. But what we also have to have is community. We need to have people who step forward and say, I have the gift of time. Yes, I've got the gift of financial resources, but I also have the gift of time because I believe that we will not change a child's life because of the money that we give them or the things that we give them. The love box, when we put content into a box, that's great, but that's not what our program is. It is about the person that shows up, that knows the color of their eyes and the passions of their heart, that says, I see you, I value you, I love you, I care for you. I'm going to visit you at school. I'm going to come and bring you lunch. I care about your grades. I'm going to do flashcards with you. I'm going to show up for you over and over and over. It's the consistency. That's the real magic to our program. It's not complicated. It's just about community. It's about showing up and being intentional. So, you know, one of the cool things that I heard from a person a couple of years ago, her and her husband were on their way to their love box family. And they passed me in the car going down a road and she called me afterwards and she said, I want you to know that my husband in the car, they were, she said, Oh, there goes Susan. And the husband said, she doesn't even understand the impact that she has made that, that this to me is church, that these people were not a faith, but the community that was created in this love box group and in this foster family, he said, she is giving me church. She doesn't even know the impact. And I think um, that was powerful for me. Oh yeah. And, and then lastly, you know, we need, we need many incredible volunteers. And so I think what's also awesome about our program is that it's not just about what you can do for us, but what we can do for you. And what I mean by that is, you know, you don't, you don't sign up for us and we give you just a, 
any specific child or family. We do a, a needs assessment, and, and what that looks like is, what is it that you are looking for in this volunteer opportunity too? So you've got littles. Are you, are you wanting to be paired with a family who also has littles so that you can literally do life with these people? Or do you have a heart for the older child? Because if you have a heart for the older child, then we can give you, and you can be uh, paired with a youth that's 15, 16 years old. You have the ability to give financially or more emotion. Or do you have time to give? Maybe you want to rock a baby. Maybe you want to go and be paired. Like we've got a single mom that has taken in a 10 month old who was like, if I could just have somebody come over and rock my baby so I can take a nap or wash my hair, like that's what I need. So we want to do a full assessment to say, what is it that you're looking for too? And then we match them based on what they're able to give. And, And that's another powerful part. So I would say those are the kind of couple of things that somebody could do right now to get involved. Yeah. Okay, so then as we wrap up, can you just tell me what has been the hardest part of your job and what's been the best? The hardest part of what I do is every time I have to look at a youth who's aged out of care that we didn't get to. And I have to say to them, I'm sorry that we didn't get to you. That is the worst part because we have so many children across our country who need so desperately to be in our program. And that is the mission of what we do is how do we get to every single kid so that every single kid has the opportunity to rise and reach their fullest potential. By far, that is the hardest thing. All these other logistical things, and um, that is secondary because these are kids. And when you are so close to the trauma and the heartbreak of these kids, that is the driving force for me every single day when I wake up. When I told you that, um, you know, I get to talk to my presidents the first Monday of every month, how that's like Christmas morning. It's so exciting for me. It, <laughs> It literally is, but every day my internal alarm clock goes off without an alarm, an actual alarm that goes off. And I'm telling you, I wake up every day and praise God for the work that I get to do. It feels like the greatest honor of my life and changing families and children's lives. I mean, yeah, doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Um, This is something that I ask everybody that um, I interview. As you know, we say at National Angels that not everyone is called to foster or adopt, but everyone in our community can play some sort of role in changing a child's life. So as our CEO and founder, what advice would you have for volunteers in the greater Houston area who are considering coming alongside our children and their caretakers? Well, I would say just do it. Absolutely, 100% dive in with all of your heart and give these kids and these families your whole heart. Don't be afraid to love them, even if they um, go back to bioparent and or and you're not allowed to follow them for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. Um, give them your whole heart. Give them your undivided attention. When you're with them, look them in the eye. Hug them, hold them if it's appropriate and allowed. Um, physical touch, healthy physical touch. Tell these kids you love them. Tell them it's okay. They need to hear it. They need to feel loved. Um, And I would say, just do it. Don't be afraid. This is not about you. This is about a child or a family on the other end who so desperately need you to show up. You don't have to be perfect. I've had people say to me, well, I am not a professional. I don't have anything to offer. And I'm like, can you read? (laughs) If you can read, then you can go and sit with a three-year-old who's never been read to before, and you can take a stack of books, and you can put that baby in your lap, and you can read to them. And if you can read, then you have the power to change a child's life. 
Can you brush that little girl's hair? Can you paint that little girl's nails? Can you rub her feet? Can you go and throw a ball with your, with your little you know, five-year-old boy who always wanted to be in baseball? Can you go outside and do chalk on a sidewalk? Can you push him? Can you teach him how to ride a bike? Can you teach him how to swim? Because you don't have to be perfect in order to change somebody else's life. You can be broken yourself and help to heal a child who has gone through massive trauma. You are amazing. I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Your passion is so contagious. But honestly, thank you so much. Um, you're such an inspiration. Your passion, your drive, your leadership, your confidence, your support. Um, I, as well as many others in the National Angels family, we admire these qualities so much. And I thank you for all the long nights and hard work that we know that you put in to getting Austin Angels up and running and then scaling it so that all of us from different parts of the country could join in and make an impact where we are. So thank you for giving me this opportunity here in Houston. And I'm just excited to see where we're all headed next. Me too. I'm excited and I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you.